You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Welcome to the Thursday edition of Bloomberg's Balance of Power. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. Welcome to Little Friday. We've got news and it doesn't appear to be encouraging. Just as Kirsten Cinema tweets new hope for a border deal, this just a couple of moments ago, for months, she writes on X, lead negotiators Chris Murphy, Senator Langford, and I have been working in good faith with DHS, the White House, and party leaders on a bipartisan border security package. Remembering, of course, this is what is supposed to hinge Ukrainian funding on here. We're really close, she writes, and we're working carefully to get this right. But Mitch McConnell appears to be caving to Donald Trump on this. Remarkable reporting from inside a closed-door meeting of Senate Republicans yesterday. As he told members, politics on this have changed. And time may already have run out for a deal. The line that is resonating today in Washington, we do not want to do anything to undermine him. Now this happens as the tax deal we've been talking optimistically about for days. Bipartisan, bicameral appears to also be on the rocks here as members of the Senate Finance Committee demand a markup that could slow or kill the deal. All this without a budget, heading for a government shutdown now, the 1st of March, and a Republican conference in the House that does not want to play along with Speaker Johnson's ideas here for another potential continuing resolution. How about that for a menu to start our meal today? With Jack Fitzpatrick reporting for Bloomberg Government live from the Capitol. He's with us right now, Jack. How am I doing on this? I'm having trouble finding any good news. Uh, Yeah, it's hard to find great news, but I have to be honest. We have to go basically minute by minute on the latest on the border deal. There is so much happening behind the scenes in closed-door meetings, and we are trying to get as much information from that as we possibly can. Uh, if Senator Cinema says they are really close, that is good news for the negotiators. Mm-hmm. There have been uh, some mixed reports out of a meeting yesterday in which Senator McConnell certainly at least acknowledged the political tension of Donald Trump, now pretty much the presumptive Republican nominee, running on immigration and border measures while Republican lawmakers negotiate something to fix some of those issues. Um, Just speaking this morning to Mike Rounds, Senator Republican who was in the meeting, uh, he he said Republican leadership has not backed away from the deal. It it, it would be an overstatement to say uh, that that this is dead or that they are turning away from it. McConnell is still very supportive. There just has been an acknowledgement of the tension between Trump's politics and the current negotiations. Mm-hmm. And that could be uh, a bad thing when you turn to the House, where the conservative yeah. wing really is in charge. It also sounds like a senator who doesn't want to be on the, the wrong side of Donald Trump today. Everybody's speaking very carefully here, Jack. The fact of the matter is Mitch McConnell apparently in this meeting referred to Trump as the nominee. Is that the baseline now on Capitol Hill? He certainly has been treated uh, almost as if he is the nominee already. When when Trump says I'm against this piece of legislation, it's a major uh, a major stance that ripples through uh, Capitol Hill. Uh, there's no one else with that kind of position. If Nikki Haley tried to uh, 
hit the brakes on negotiations, they would not have this kind of effect. The fact that they're talking this much about Trump uh, pretty much tells you what you need to know. So, yes, his position matters very much on Capitol Hill. So what now for Cinema Langford and Murphy? Will they continue to hammer away, even if this might be DOA? I'm not trying to rhyme here, Jack, but this is where we are. Yes, they are still working on it. Um, a lot of the issues have been hammered out, hammered out in terms of the broad policy. Then they hand it over to the members of the Appropriations Committee who figure out how much it's going to cost to enforce any legal changes. Uh, so they're sort of moving from a broad framework agreement into the technicalities. That's not easy. Mm -hmm. They still have plenty of work to do there, uh, but they are still moving forward. That's the part of the process they're in. It would be easier to get a lot of Senate Republicans on board than House Republicans. There's just more skepticism in the House. So it may not be DOA in the Senate, even if there are Mm -hmm. still challenges going on, but they certainly are still working on this. Boy, this doesn't sound terribly hopeful, but I'll have to ask you, too, about this tax deal as members, Republicans and Democrats, by the way, of the Senate Finance Committee, uh, ask for a markup on something that was supposed to move quickly. The authors of this bill, uh, the negotiators, chairs of Senate Finance and House Ways and Means, said it had to be passed by early February to avoid trouble with the tax filing season. This would slow things down beyond that likely. Jack, you've been covering the Hill for a minute. When you hear members say they want a markup on something like this, what does that tell you? Uh, That's difficult because scheduling the markup and then opening the door to however many changes pivotal senators may want via amendments uh, is not the quickest process. It's also tough to just point to early February and say you want to get it done then. If they could attach this to another vehicle, that would be great. But the next vehicle isn't until early March when they have to fund the government. So it is a significant challenge. He's the best at what he does. Jack Fitzpatrick, Bloomberg government. Great to see you, Jack. And thank you uh, for the update here as we add the voice of Mark Goldwine. And I can only imagine Mark's thoughts on this tax deal uh, where there was hope now apparently turning to smoke. I don't know. He's with the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Senior VP, Mark, great to see you. I haven't seen you yet this year, and I'm wondering where your head is and what appears to be, I don't know, it's like we're being gaslit again by lawmakers. You think you're on the verge of something, and then you wake up to headlines like this today. It's starting to feel like the shop is closed. Were you hopeful, or are you still, for this tax deal to bring an expanded child tax credit and more business-friendly taxes to corporations? Yeah, well, happy, Happy New Year, Joe, first of all. Uh, there we are. I, I think Thank I was always you. about 50-50 on this tax deal, and that's where I, re- I remain. Yeah, there's some pushback over a few elements, the look-back provision and some other things like that. Um, but I, I do think there's a lot of momentum behind it. And while uh, I, I certainly have a lot of criticisms of the tax deal, something they did really great and really important is they fully paid for it. They cut out this excessive payments on uh, employee retention credit. You've probably gotten text messages and emails and calls on it. Mm-hmm. I have. You know, there's these scam artists out here trying to basically soak hundreds of billions of dollars out of the federal government, and they're going to close that that loophole in order to pay for this this tax bill. Hmm. Well, you know, we've had conversations about raising revenue before, and that sounds kind of like a joke at this point here. Um, are you expecting, before I get into the other stuff uh, beyond tax deal, are, are you worried about a shutdown coming in March? Because this this is becoming a more difficult task for the speaker every day. And we have a laddered CR that starts shutting down March 1st. 
I, nobody's even talking about details beyond top line spending on a budget. Yeah, I mean, I'm always a little worried about shutdown, but uh, usually we find a way, uh, at least by the last minute. And this time, I think behind the scenes, they actually are making some progress on appropriations. I don't know if they'll get hmm. there in time. There's not a lot of legislative weeks, but I do think they're making some forward progress. So overall, I would say I'm optimistic that uh, we're going to keep the government open this year. Will we find money uh, for the president in his supplemental budget request for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan? And I'm asking you that with news today that this border deal is uh, looking ever more elusive as Mitch McConnell starts to acknowledge the presence of Donald Trump, who, of course, does not want a deal on the border. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the $100 billion question, right? Uh, Republicans kind of kept switching what is their ask for Ukraine, and it was border. And now we heard yesterday, maybe border's not going to work. Um, at the end of the day, I still expect we're probably going to get some money for Ukraine, some money for Israel, uh, some aid for Gaza. The border, I, I don't know, 40-60, um, but it's mm. it's not dead. It's not over till it's over. You sound optimistic. A lot of people are walking around town today saying the store is closed. How the heck are you going to get anything through this Congress? Well, what you have to understand well, I guess that you don't know until you start like, creeping up on deadlines. Go yeah. ahead. What sounds like optimism is actually pessimism from my point because it's all adding more and more to the, to, to the debt. So when I think they're going to get something done, I think hmm. they're going to make the deficit worse. Oh, God. So you're in the gridlock is good camp. You want them to shut it down the rest of the year. Uh, no, gridlock's not good. Look, we have an unsustainable underlying fiscal situation. Gridlock means you don't save Social Security, means you don't save Medicare, means you never do anything to reform government. So gridlock's not good. Mm. Um, but too often, bipartisanship is an excuse to make things worse rather than make things better. Well, let's start talking about some of the possibilities then. They've even floated the idea of a year-long CR. What are we halfway through? the? By the time we get there, halfway through the fiscal year, this is kind of ridiculous. It's time to present a new budget. We're we're talking about State of the Union season here, Mark. Uh, this speaker could get fired for doing it, but how would the committee feel about a year-long CR that would include that across-the-board sequester that would take effect in April? So you would be cutting spending. Yeah, well, that, that sequester is actually really complicated, probably too much for us to discuss here. Um, but I don't yeah. think they'll do a full year-long CR. It may be that they agree on some of the appropriations, like defense, and they don't agree on others like Homeland Security. And so they CR the ones they don't agree on. But I think it's unlikely they'll mm. CR the whole thing. Um, and if they do, it actually raises a lot of complicating questions about how that sequester uh, would work. And they're going to have to make adjustments to make sure that that it, it works as expected. Just imagine all the supplementals if that were to happen, right? You do the year-long CR Speaker makes the Freedom Caucus go insane, but then Lindsey Graham and everyone shows up, the budget hawks show up, chairs of the Armed Services Committee uh, committees say, we need more money for the Pentagon. That, that you, can, you can write the story already, can't you? And look, if we can't even do basic budgeting, can't even pass the government appropriations on time, how are we going to solve the bigger problems? I mean, Washington is mm -hmm. just so broken, and the few times that shows signs of not being broken it's generally to make things worse. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you what, this has been an uplifting program the last couple of days. Let's talk <laughs> about what we learned in New Hampshire and Iowa, Mark. We've been on the road and we're just back. This talk of a Trump nomination uh, and Trump as a fiscal conservative 
is interesting here. His rivals, now only one left, Nikki Haley, trying to make the point that he added a lot to the deficit. In fact, some $7 trillion. Is the committee worried that we're about to do this all over again? Uh, well, we actually estimate that President Trump added $8.4 trillion to the debt. That's how much he signed into law. 8.4. That's tax cuts. That's spending increases. A good part of that is COVID. But even without the COVID, it's almost COVID relief. It's almost $5 trillion. So uh, that's not to say that he's going to add another 8.4 if he takes office again. But his record on fiscal responsibility isn't exactly strong. Nikki Haley has been talking about Social Security. The one candidate to open the lockbox. Is that a conversation that you encourage? I'm assuming that's a yes. Oh, we have to have it. Social Security is nine years from insolvency. Nine years. That means today's 53-year-olds will be eligible and their benefits will be cut across the board. Uh, For a typical couple, $17,000 cut in 2033. We should have been talking about this 20 years ago. Uh, We need to be talking about this today. And uh, Ambassador Haley certainly gets credit in my book for at least starting that conversation. Just getting killed for it on TV up in New Hampshire. They're running ads every five minutes, or they were. Now it's on to South Carolina. And I'm fascinated, uh, Mark, that the, the, whether it's Donald Trump or a couple of weeks ago, Ron DeSantis have chosen this as the issue to really hit home on when it comes to Nikki Haley. She didn't even really articulate a policy. She just said, you know, got to move the age to some yeah. extent uh, for people who are just buying into the system here. That means we're never is, getting to this, right? If we can't have that conversation in a presidential election, when are we going to do it? This is so shameful. And it, and it comes from Republicans and it comes from Democrats. Um, you know, the, the do nothing plan, attacking any kind of solution. But here's the reality. Mm-hmm. If you're saying don't touch Social Security, you are endorsing a $17,000 a year cut for a new couple in just nine years. That's the consequence of inaction. The law says we cannot pay benefits beyond what is what's being brought in a $17,000 cut. And so they can run their ads, but it's exactly backwards. If we don't talk about social security, we are dooming a lot of seniors to a pretty deep cut in their standard of living. And you've got, these are the people who actually go out and vote, which is fascinating. I just, it's, it's confounding why we don't have this conversation in the throes of a contest like this, the throes of a debate, uh, Maybe that's what's leading to the sense of inevitability with Donald Trump, uh, Mark. Either way, if this is Joe Biden's last term, and I am not projecting that, we're talking about what might happen if either become president here. What would be his record on deficits? He likes to take credit for being the only president in recent history to lower them. Yeah, no, that's silly. We haven't tallied President Biden um, on a kind of updated basis, but he's probably added about $4 trillion to the debt. So that's not as much as President Trump's $8.4 trillion. But it's still a lot. He didn't reduce debt. What happened is he came in in 2021 and we were still amidst COVID, right? And he actually added to the debt more in 2021. But in 2022, things came back to normal. They've since gone back up. Uh, He's added substantially to the debt. Debt has accumulated substantially over his presidency. Uh, What he didn't do is repeat the $3 trillion deficits of 20 and 20 and 2021 over and over again. which appears to be worth celebrating to somebody. Mark, it's good to see you. Thank you for uh, bringing your research to us here, as always, in your point of view on Bloomberg. Mark Goldwine from the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Remember this conversation when you hear these claims from both sides of the aisle. We're still looking for someone to reduce the debt and deficit. 
I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. We'll carry on here on the fastest show in politics with us on the radio, on the satellite, and on YouTube. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Meanwhile, here on Pennsylvania Avenue, both ends of it, it's a little confusing what's going on in terms of negotiating, Joe, on a border deal. The latest ex-post from Senator... (laughs) Cinema, who, of course, is involved in this, along with Senator Lankford and Murphy, Republican, Independent, Democrat, all involved, posted today that they've been working in good faith which, with DHS, the White House, and party leaders on a bipartisan border security package. Yeah. She says, we're really close, and we're working carefully to get this right. But what's a deal really worth close. if even Mitch McConnell doesn't seem like it's worth voting on? Yeah, I don't. The timing of this is interesting because it follows this meeting yesterday. I'm assuming that one of these folks, Jim Langford, was in that meeting, right? Yeah. It was a Republican Senate membership meeting behind closed doors. And it was like, hey, reality set in after New Hampshire. Uh, what was the line? We don't want to do anything to undermine. to undermine him. Mitch McConnell referring to him as the nominee because Donald Trump wants to run a campaign on, on immigration. And boy, if you've been listening to this broadcast, you saw it coming. We've been asking about this for weeks, the impact that Donald Trump might have in potentially squashing a deal that could make Democrats look good. We're already here. And so the cinema tweet is interesting. They're going to keep at this, I guess, until there's a deal. But it just might not matter. Right. It might be a deal that gets done, but actually doesn't get turned into law. Let's try to get more on this now. I'm pleased to say joining us from Bloomberg Government, who reports on Congress uh, for BGov, is Zach Cohen. So... Zach, is this is this still happening, but not really happening? What? How should we be thinking about the prospects for something on the border passing through Congress now? This is a really critical juncture for this package of border security legislation that's been tied for the last couple of weeks now to aid uh, not just for Ukraine, but as well as uh, Israel and Taiwan. There were a number of meetings among Senate Republicans this week trying to get a better sense of what's actually in this deal. Uh, Our understanding is about 90 percent of it has been written in negotiations with not just Senators James Langford, Kirsten Sinema, Chris Murphy, but as well as uh, representatives from the White House. Uh, But I think the reality is said again that if you have uh, former President Trump Uh, who just won the New Hampshire primary and the Iowa caucus before that, railing against uh, any potential deal that is going to win Democratic support, that they should just wait until he comes back into office. Now, Republican leadership has said they still want to get a deal. Uh, McConnell himself told our colleague Eric Wasson that they're still negotiating. They're hoping to get something done, in part because Ukraine aid is going to be really hard to move through both the Senate and the House without some sort of enticement for Republican senators who are critical of Ukraine aid to get that job done as well. And so uh, we'll have to wait and see how this text finally comes out. There's certainly going to be some skeptics of it uh, in the Senate Republican conference and certainly some Democrats as well. Uh, But as far as we know, certainly Trump's comments have made it harder, but that a deal is still on the table. So is Donald Trump now essentially the Speaker of the House and the Republican leader in the Senate? I think it's undeniable. He has a lot of influence here. And Republicans will, will certainly tell you that. I think McConnell may have alluded to that yesterday uh, in talks. But uh, Republican leadership is still pretty insistent that this is the best uh, opportunity they have to really get a border deal done. So, you know, this is the, they've gotten more concessions from Democrats in the last couple of weeks than they ever got during the Trump administration on any sort of border package. 
and so certainly Trump saying, you know, leave this to me to deal with when we get there, uh, falling on deaf ears, even among some hard right Republicans who have said because the, the border crisis is such a clear and present danger, as said to Ron Johnson, the Republican of Wisconsin, told me they want to see something get done. The question is, does it survive the House? Does Speaker Mike Johnson put this on the floor, mm-hmm. probably on a suspension vote that would require bipartisan support, even if he ends up losing hard right Republicans who, if your Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene has talked about actually ousting him from that job if it included aid for Ukraine. So there's a narrow path for this deal still to happen. And certainly the the power players actually crafting it are still at the table. Okay, so that's one deal, Zach. We also have another deal that actually has already been made and marked up, that tax deal, uh, bipartisan between the Senate uh, finance leader, Senator Wyden, and the chair of, of the House Ways and Means Committee, Jason Smith. They had the deal, they marked it up. Now it seems like we're running into issues. Is this too something that just isn't gonna be able to get adequate support? Certainly, it's not going to make that January 29th deadline that finance chairman Ron Wyden had posited for the beginning of tax filings season. Uh, any sort of tax package was going to be difficult, certainly in an election year, as we've been discussing. Uh, sometimes lawmakers would prefer to leave something to after the 2024 elections when maybe a different configuration of power would lead to a better deal. Uh, it did get marked up out of the House Ways and Means Committee, the tax writing panel, uh, on a pretty substantial bipartisan vote, I think 40 to 3, if I'm remembering correctly and uh, should be going to the House floor uh, as soon as next week, maybe later than that. If that comes out of the House with a really strong bipartisan vote, it would go over to the Senate, where uh, Mike Crapo, the top Republican on the Finance Committee, uh, told me yesterday they expect an opportunity to amend that bill on the floor of the Senate. What that means for its prospects of actually passing the Senate and going back to the House, that's a whole other issue. All right. So this is this is getting silly. We're done here, right? I mean, come on. Maybe I'm just not in a great mood, uh, <laughs> but this is not a functioning operation here, guys. We can't figure out even how to get beyond top line figures for a budget. This border deals smoking right now. Now we're going to mark up the tax deal. Got to bring in Denver Riggleman. He's got to be rolling his eyes somewhere in the heart of Virginia. Former Republican congressman is with us here on Bloomberg Balance of Power. Denver, is the store closed? For the rest of the year, yeah, I don't know. or is it just me? <laughs> yeah, I don't think your mood's going to get any better when I'm done. Um, I think uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just I think there's a lot of legislators that are cosplaying right now through 2024 when you're That's looking good. at these deals, and and um, I think what they're doing is they're just trying to keep people interested and waiting for Trump to make a decision. And I think what you saw McConnell say really is no different than what DeSantis and Tim Scott did this week, right? Where they're almost like, you know, Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed embracing in the water in in their trip to Mar-a-Lago. I mean, that's really what we got is everybody's rolling over and showing their bellies right now uh, for Trump. And if you think, and if you think about McConnell's statement, sir, you're telling me we have to wait for Trump. We don't want to go sideways on him. The American people be damned. And I think that's the crazy part about the two-party system, especially when one party's in a hold my beer moment. You can't get anything done because they're waiting on one person, you know, one demagogue to tell them what's okay and Mm -hmm. what's not okay. And I think that's why your mood is probably not that great. Okay, so what do you make of the idea that if they wait until the election, decide to try to tackle border security under potentially a future second Trump administration, is there any real chance it get, would get done then? Because you need 60 votes in the Senate. And then if Democrats couldn't pass it under Biden, why would they allow it passed under Trump? Especially if the Democrats hold the House. It's a fantastic question. And by the way, yeah. and 
again, not to be another mood killer, but if you have the far right and some of the people that I do know talking about now, by the way, I want to say there are issues at the border. I would be the first to say that. But the far right is talking about the imminent danger of Hamas crossing the border. But we're going to wait for Donald, you know, there at Mar-a-Lago to give us the give us the uh, the go ahead in order to protect the American Republic. When we've been screaming about this for the last couple of weeks, it's absolutely hypocritical. And again, when I talk about these legislators cosplaying, it doesn't really change going into 2025 if Trump were to win the election, because more than likely you're going to have a democratically controlled House. Who knows what's going to happen in the Senate? So let's let's be real. Right. Right now, this is just a big slow roll with one person while they're waiting for for him to actually be blessed as a nominee. And that's really what's going on here. Well, just to reset uh, Denver, do you agree there'll be no budget? for this fiscal year, CRs to the horizon. There will be no border deal. Ukraine will get no money and will be abandoned. And there'll be probably no tax deal to crow about either. Yeah, I mean, McConnell hooking the border deal to Ukraine aid is is pretty much a red flag, I think, for anybody who's looking at what's going over in Ukraine. You know, there there was a great intelligence uh, officer that trained me uh, 20 years ago, and he said, Denver, the only way to tell the future is after it happens. Uh, it's the same way with Congress and, and and what's going on right now in the Senate and the House. But I see I think it's going to be very hard to get a budget through. And I think it's going to be very difficult to do anything with Ukraine. You know, again, while we have Trump sort of being the party leader, you know, not only the Senate lead, but also, you know, acting as, you know, Mike Johnson's inner voice. I, I just I think it's almost impossible. And it's just it, it will be a surprise to me if it happens. Never say never. I, I never try to do that. You know, sometimes I've been wrong in my predictions because Congress is such a chaotic um, hellhole right now. But uh, you never know. But I think I think it's going to be very difficult. Sorry, that was pretty blunt. Hellhole was a word I like to use. No, you know, in a, a lot technical of technical Yeah, technical term that I like to use. <laughs> Well, of course, one of the examples of dysfunction in Congress has been that a speaker was ousted, and that's why Mike Johnson got the job in the first place. At the very least, if none of these things are even going to come to the floor, does it at least save him the speaker's gavel because he's not going to have to try to navigate the different priorities of his hard right flank and, say, trying to actually do some legislating? Yeah, it's it's interesting. It's a great question that an individual who wants to keep power does as little as possible, you know, which seems like that's what Congress is right now. And I think that's really what you have. I do think, and, and based on your question, I think the same, I think they're really missing Kevin McCarthy right now. And think about that, right? After ousting him and, and having Mike Johnson, you know, installed as speaker, I think the same, even though they weren't happy with McCarthy in many, many ways, and McCarthy was also rolling over a bit himself, I think they're looking back at fondness in the chaos of the McCarthy, you know, era, when you're looking at what's going on with Mike Johnson. And yeah, I think the less that he does to further any type of bipartisan deal, the stronger he is a speaker uh, based on the way that the House is structured right now. I want to remind our viewers and listeners of your involvement in the January 6th committee, uh, Denver, and your book. Denver is author, co-author of The Breach, the untold story of the investigation into January 6th. Last hour, we received a headline that Peter Navarro has been sentenced to four uh, months in prison here uh, on two contempt of Congress charges related to the January 6th investigation into the 2020 elections. What does that mean when you finally hear resolution like this? I'm sure he'll appeal it. But what does it mean for the others who bust their subpoenas? Yeah. yeah, Bannon is still waiting. You know, he's still in appeal right now for his four-month sentence. But I don't, with Peter Navarro, I don't think it could happen to a better Fruit Loop. 
I think, uh, you know, you're talking about somebody who wrote The Immaculate Deception, which is one of the most nutty, um, I would say, Stop the Steal publications you could ever write. I think Jenny Thomas used that, you know, to help with her text messages. He's also the person who came up with the Green Bay Sweep, or he said he did. I mean, obviously, Stop the Steal was started by Roger Stone in 2016. Let's not let's not fool ourselves. Nobody was going to take credit for anything. But you have really an election denier who did stand up Congress, who did ignore subpoena, and somebody who got what he deserved. But listen, you can't give jail time for being insane or he get life, um, but you can give jail time for contempt of Congress, and that's why he got the four months. And, uh, you know, a lot of people really listened to what he was saying, and really Peter Navarro, again, couldn't happen to a better fruit loop. Well, talk about election denying. Of course, Joe and I just returned from New Hampshire, where at his victory party in in New Hampshire, Trump falsely claimed that he won New Hampshire in the 2020 election. He has continually reiterated this kind of thing. And yet he is the presumptive at this point Republican nominee with more than 50 percent support in both Iowa and New Hampshire. What does that say about how these next nine and a half months until the general election are going to go? Does it even does it even matter his language? No, no, I, I think that's what should bother so many Americans that his language really is doesn't matter. I mean, you're talking about somebody who's either, you know, lying, uh, stupid um, or both. Uh, th that's it. There's really no other way to go. Uh, and that's but again, his supporters don't care. Uh, because it all goes back into this narrative of deep state, of globalists, of the election being stolen, all the conspiracy theories you can think of sur surrounding Stop the Steal. And if you think the people that are supporting that, or they're polling saying that the election was still stolen, you, you know, these are people who actually believe that Italian satellites, you know, actually changed votes, or that Hugo Chavez, <laughs> Venezuelan government actually broke the algorithm, yeah. or that there's, you know, let's be honest, that there's crazy people burning ballots in a, in a yard. So no, the language doesn't mm -hmm. matter. Denver Riggleman, never one to mince words. We thank you. It's Denver Unchained, <laughs> former Republican congressman, the founder of Rig Security. I'm Joe Matthew alongside Kaylee Lines in Washington. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Balance of Power podcast. Catch us live weekdays at noon Eastern on Apple CarPlay and Android Auto with the Bloomberg Business app. Listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts or watch us live on YouTube. Running us through the market action on this day when we got a boatload of economic data. Welcome back to Balance of Power on both Bloomberg Television and Radio, where, Joe, we've talked extensively about the issue of the border on this program because yep. we know that is top of mind for voters, but so too is the health of the U.S. economy. And if you look at today's data, it's looking pretty healthy. That's for sure. Advanced read of GDP for the fourth quarter, 3.3%. The average economist forecast was down at 2%. So not a recession. Doesn't look like one. Okay. Because we keep hearing that we're about to have a recession, and I've been hearing that for, well, two years now. That's right. And the data still topping expectations. White House got to be happy about this. Well, they put out a statement that would suggest that. Yes, they <laughs> yeah. did. Flexing that growth is still up. Is that a timed email? And inflation is down. 3.3. Mm -hmm. Pretty remarkable here. You can add more. You said there was other uh, data here. Add personal yeah. spending. This is interesting yeah. now. So if infl are we in a world now where inflation cools and it actually stokes growth because people can afford more? Well, looking at the data, that is kind of an assumption you could make because when you sure. look at the GDP price index, which essentially is an indicator of price pressures, that was lower than expected. 1.5% on the headline quarter on quarter, 2% on 
you know, 2% the target right. over at the Fed. Ooh, a little alarm bell just went off. I just think it's interesting, though, because yeah. the conventional wisdom also is, hey, you might want interest rate cuts, but once that starts happening, that's because we're slowing. And maybe we're in a world where we get both. Maybe. Let's put that question now to Bharat Ramamurti, who is joining us. He, of course, was former deputy director of the National Economic Council and now is senior advisor for economic strategy at the American Economic Liberties Project. Bharat, great to see you. You're here in studio with us, which is super exciting. What does this data signal to you? Is it ever going to cool down the U.S. economy? Look, there's no real science of slowing down in any of the data. You look not only at the incredibly strong GDP number today, which is really a blockbuster number, you look at recent data, data on, on retail sales, mm -hmm. on consumer spending, data on business investment, all of it is painting a very rosy picture of, of the strength in the economy. There really isn't a lot of weakness. As you noted, uh, the key question now, I think, is how is the Fed going to respond to all of this? Uh, to me, at least, uh, there's a pretty clear case for starting cuts in March. Mm -hmm. I think that uh, right now the balance between inflation and, and employment is pretty finely balanced. Uh, there are some minor signs of weakening in the labor market. If you look at uh, the hiring rate, that's starting to slow down a little bit. Initial uh, unemployment claims today came in slightly above uh, what we were anticipating. So uh, nothing to panic about yet. But again, given that monetary policy operates with a lag, and the Fed is already projecting several cuts this year, in my view, it's best to get on with it and start in March. Hmm. It sure seems like forecasting is broken. I don't know if when you were helping to run the National Economic Council, if you had better internal data and you'd look at Wall Street and laugh when they'd be wrong uh, every month or quarter. But is that a post-COVID phenomenon? Is that as simple as what it is? How come nobody can get their arms around what's about to happen? Yeah, I think, look, there is a lot of reliance on economic modeling, which makes sense, but we should all be relatively humble about it in the sense that we're not drawing on a whole lot of data. We're not drawing on a whole a very large sample size when we're looking at recessions. There's only been a few dozen of them in the entire recorded history of the United States. And it's important to remember that the underlying cause of this particular recession, it wasn't like the financial crisis in 2008. It was a once in a three generation pandemic. Yeah. And I think in many ways, if you look at the way that the economy responded after the Spanish flu about 100 mm -hmm. years ago, mm -hmm. if you even go back and look at some data about what happened after the Great Plague hundreds of years ago, yeah. there's a really interesting analysis about how uh, this type of recovery that we're seeing is what you would anticipate. So you actually have to go back to these historical models that are more telling than your standard Were you guys models. sitting down with spreadsheets across the floor looking at that? Yeah, I, we would look, there was a lot of underlying belief that given the fact that COVID was such a disruption to the supply side of the economy, and that we had these clear evidence of supply chain issues, clear evidence of supply restrictions, that as long as we stabilized consumer demand, uh -huh. that, that supply would come back to match the level of demand, and we could see a reduction in inflation without a massive increase in unemployment. The president was saying that, Secretary Yellen was making that claim, and I think given the data we've seen over the last year, they were very clearly correct. Well, when we talk about consumer demand and what can catalyze consumer demand, what do you often hear from those on the Republican side? We heard a lot of this in Iowa and New Hampshire over the course of the last several weeks, is there's been too much spending, too much of a fiscal impulse, and that is what has led to these inflationary forces that have been so hard to rein back in this economy. That argument isn't fundamentally wrong, is it, especially as we're heading into a new spending battle right now as, as we speak. I mean, look, to me, the, it's very instructive to look at what happened in other countries because we ran a controlled experiment. Other countries, whether it was the UK, the EU, they did far less fiscal stimulus than the United States did. 
they got equal to or as much or more inflation than the United States did, but they got a whole heck of a lot less growth. They had uh, much worse performance on wages, and the, and the bottom line was that the residents of those places came out further behind because they didn't see wages rise to meet the global inflation that we had coming out of the pandemic. If you look at uh, analyses of how much uh, additional inflation the U.S. fiscal response caused, it was fairly marginal. It was maybe a percentage point or two. And so instead of 9% inflation, let's say we had 7% inflation. Mm -hmm. uh, the flip side of that is that we would have had far less, much, uh, far less employment, far less growth, far less wage growth. And I think the American uh, people would have come out uh, on the negative side of that equation. On the subject of wage growth, that also has to tie into labor and the labor movement, of which President Biden has been very supportive. In fact, just yesterday, he finally secured the endorsement of the United Auto Workers mm. after really pushing for those pretty high wage demands that, that those workers had. Do you see any risk at all that what has been unleashed by that could continue? Because we know that the Fed sure is watching, you know, the PCE data and all of that stuff. Sorry, that was a loud clap for everyone listening <laughs> on radio. But is there a risk of, of the, kind of that wage price spiral that could still kick in? I don't think there's a very high risk. I mean, look, there is a lot of capacity in this economy for higher wages. Um, and one of the great things about what happened with the UAW and their fight for, for a fair wage package is that uh, after the unionized workforce saw wage gains, you saw all these non-unionized places at Toyota and elsewhere respond by having to raise their wages too. Mm -hmm. and look, this is an administration, I know for a fact, that's never gonna look down at wage gains. It's, they, we, they believe that it is important that p workers get a fair share, and there's plenty of profits to draw on uh, for, for people to get paid fairly and for companies to do well too. I mean, what we have right now is an economy that's not only growing at the top line, but a key factor here is that productivity is growing very quickly too. And productivity is really the silver bullet here because you can have high wage gains and high growth and low inflation as long as productivity continues to grow at a rapid rate. And that's what we've seen over the last several months. Fascinating conversation and great to have you back with us, Bharat Ramamurti. Uh, let's stay in touch as we uh, apparently walk our way through a year without a recession. I mean, if we're not <laughs> talking about this yet, Kayla, you wonder what would bring it. Well, it is only January. Fair enough. The general election is still nine and a half months away. Maybe we're so. closing things down a little early all the way across. Uh, Barack, great to see you. Welcome back, as always, to Bloomberg Balance of Power. I'm Joe Matthew alongside Kaylee Lyons. Thanks for listening to the Balance of Power podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at noontime Eastern at Bloomberg.com.